0: This episode of Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us this Tuesday when we'll have leaders from Quasar telling you how to find the best ROI opportunities in the China market. Check it out. We'll talk about China later in the podcast, but you should also sign up for this upcoming Device Talks Tuesdays. Go to devicetalks.com. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Ready. salemi welcome back to the device talks weekly podcast this is episode number 47 wow we've got jeff martha back he is our closing keynote so thrilled to have him back on the podcast and we have duke rollin duke is a superstar ceo who's doing some great work with kkr this is a power-packed episode i don't want to keep you from it but i have two requests number one Find me on LinkedIn. I've got a survey there. I'm just asking folks how they feel about attending conferences in the second half of the year. Just find me. Please connect if you'd like to. Uh, I think you can still fill out the poll if you don't. But uh, just a simple four-choice poll. Boom, you'll be done. One question, four choices. Pick one and move on. My next ask is less an ask and more just a, a bit of a note for you. Later on, we're going to be talking about the our R&D 100 Awards. You can find out more information at rd100conference.com. We'll have that in the show notes as well. Now, without any further delay, it's my pleasure to bring in my co-host, Chris Newmarker, the executive editor of Life Sciences. Chris Newmarker, welcome, sir. Good to be here. Uh, It is a it's a lovely day, Chris. I have some 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 easy math for you. Or actually, I already did the math for you. you. Don't have to worry about it. Wow. I was uh, I was going through getting ready for a presentation, going through our our podcast plays, and we have well over fifty thousand plays for this All podcast. Right. Yeah, Woo-hoo! which is great. I mean, we're had yeah. 46 episodes, uh, do the math yourself, but we are, we are doing extremely well with our, our more recent episodes that continue to grow and grow and grow. So from the bottom of, of my little tech card, I'd like to thank all of our listeners out there for pushing that play button.
1: Yep. Thanks for listening. I'm glad. Uh, yeah. I'm glad we're we're obviously, you know, I, I think we're providing some useful information for people, so that's 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 a good thing.
0: It's a good thing. It's it's why we're here, and we're why we are here, and we're going to uh, continue to kind of roll out some different ways to bring you the news. So uh, we are always innovating here at Device Talk slash Mass Device. So. But I'm not going to do a sandwich board, Tom.
1: No sandwich boards. Not- You're in Minnesota. You're yeah, in MedTech
0: Central. You just have All to right. walk through here. Maybe we'll put you in Rochester. You can walk around the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, yeah with a sandwich board you love the mayo clinic oh they might kick me out (laughs) I'm <laughs> walking around
1: their campus though, the sandwich board. I don't know. Maybe around their camp, you know, the whole discovery district I could walk around there. there would, we go. We when,
0: when when the when the COVID lifts, we will uh, you and I will take a tour. We will stand outside the headquarters of all the major med techs in Minnesota. Sounds great. Both of us in sandwich boards, uh just saying thank you with big big hearts on, on signs. How's that sound?
1: Oh that that sounds great. We could do
0: a whole video, it'll be it'll be blast. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned, folks, for the Chris and Tom tour. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, you have a hell of a hell of a top five new markers, newsmakers list, Chris. Let's let's kick it off. What is number five? Well, number five on the list, we've got uh,
1: Pavmed, uh spinning off its subsidiary Lucid Diagnostics. Uh, you know they, uh, you yeah, know they intend to do the spinoff. Uh, you know if uh, favorable market conditions uh, hold, uh, you know they. Uh, not sure. You know maybe it'll be an initial public offering. Maybe it'll be a business comp. Combination with a uh, healthcare special purpose acquisition company, and you know we actually have another top five about uh, about SPAC. So these are co- becoming quite the uh, the trend right now in uh, in medtech and the markets in general. But uh,
0: I was thinking actually SPAC about the uh, the Zimmer Nuco. I wonder if that would be a possible SPAC target. But their wow. revenue seems to be about a billion dollars for for that Nuco, according to uh, what I've read. So that that would be a lot of SPAC. I guess that's probably not a good SPAC candidate. Does anybody have half a billion dollars
1: just Sitting around that they want to spend on a spine company. Mm, maybe Apple.
0: Apple has lots of money. Apple, All right, we're starting a rumor now. Right. Apple, no. Apple's <laughs> Apple's gonna buy a new Coke. Pass it on, Chris.
1: <laughs> next thing you know, there's gonna be some people on Reddit or <laughs> like Jack <laughs> <Check> it up. Bye, <laughs> bye. <buy. laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, let's go to, to
0: number four on the new markers newsmakers list.
1: Oh, number four is we've got uh Metzio. CEO, Michael Minogue is going to be the uh, new chair of ABIMED. And, uh, you know, Moog uh, is uh, taking over for, uh, for uh, you know, Kevin, striker CEO, Kevin Lobo. Um, just a, um, you know, just, just a really, uh, you know, important uh, post in our industry, uh, you know, kind of makes, uh, you know, whatever executive is holding it becomes kind of a voice for, for the, of the industry as a whole. So it'll be a really... Uh, Really, um, actually quite an honor, actually, for, for him to uh, take that post.
0: Absolutely. No, and he's, uh, Abby Ahmed's a fascinating company. It's local to me, actually, Danvers. Uh, it's not about 20 yeah. minutes from my house. And uh, he is a, a veteran. He's an Army Ranger. Uh, he served in the Gulf War and uh, went to West Point. And I think one of the things was stated that he wanted to make uh, bringing veterans into the industry a priority. So I think that's very, very cool. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. and he also I read had been uh, the head of Advemetic Cell, the early stage entity, and now that is being led by Todd Pope, who was on the podcast. Yeah, yeah just uh, just recently. So uh, so keeping it in the device talks family. But would love to get Michael Minogue on the podcast. Michael, if you if you're listening, yeah. uh, please uh, please reach out, and uh, I'll continue to reach out to your company, and we'll have you on the podcast. So yeah, very cool. Well, now it's time for our opening keynote conversation. Very happy to have Duke Rowling back. Duke is working with the private equity firm KKR on developing new ways of funding innovative companies. We'll review his great success in this conversation. But first, a word from PSN Labs. In this episode of The Two Minute Detox, I spoke with Matthew Heidecker, Vice President at PSN Labs, your full-service engineering partner. Matt, interesting article on CNN recently about synthetic chemicals called phthalates and how they're damaging children's brain development leads to a question about medical devices. Uh, Is there a concern that medical devices and the materials they're made of might also uh, add to this problem?
2: That's an excellent question, and uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, for the past five or so years, we've worked extensively on this problem in identifying the, the presence of, of phthalates and, and other chemicals, uh, particularly with relation to um, the European medical device regulations that are coming out. Um, we're locating the presence of these chemicals and offering remediation solutions for our customers uh, because it, from a toxicological perspective, from a biocompatibility perspective, as the regulation within the medical device industry continues to change, um, as we look learn more and more about toxicology, which is a part of of what PSN does, we find that solutions are more difficult because these types of chemicals are there to provide uh, the medical devices some performance benefit. So taking those chemicals out alters the behavior of the materials and you have to account for that in some way, shape or form, which is part of our business.
0: And how do you go about ensuring that phthalates won't be a problem for medical device makers?
2: We conduct uh, a lot of testing in the realm of extractables and leachables and ISO 10993 to support the regulation for medical devices. Uh, With our business structure being uh, an engineering services group, uh, a processing lab and a test lab, which includes a, a tooling shop, we have the ability to build unique test setups that allow us to challenge devices in the ways in which they're designed to be used In a clinical setting, Uh, we have the ability to engineer a solution, machine componentry to match the device, uh, how it's actually deployed in the field. Uh, And then we conduct testing uh, based on our biocompatibility subject matter experts and our our toxicologist who allows us to select the test matrix that's most appropriate. One of the primary tests that we do for phthalates is uh, ISO 10993, which is uh, extractables and leachables testing in medical devices. And through these tests, we're able to identify Uh, with some of the best levels of detection within the industry, whether or not these chemicals are actually present. And if they are, we offer the ability to help our customers choose new materials to reduce their risk. And doing all this in one facility is a benefit to our customers uh, because they have a one-stop shop for everything that they're looking for with medical device development.
0: Thanks, Matthew. For more information, go to psnlabs.com. Well, Duke Rowling, welcome to the podcast.
3: Tom, it's good to see you again glad to be
0: here we talked last year during the dark clouds of, of the first wave of, of covid uh, talked about how that was impacting your your work at Ajax and uh, wanted to follow up first to see how things have uh, have changed in that front but also wanted to talk about some new efforts you're, you're doing with uh, with KKr and talk a bit about private equity in, in med tech uh, but but first very quickly you've your your first entrepreneurial experience we've, we've had a conversation earlier for another effort I know your first effort was a restaurant and you went to law school and then you found your way to MedTech. Walk us through quickly your, your path to, to MedTech. How did you find your way here?
3: Uh, so I'm not your, your typical, you know, worked at Guidant for 10 years and became a CEO type of guy. Uh, I did go to Stanford and then I did go and start a restaurant company primarily because I didn't want to go back to law school. <laughs> and we grew that to about 10 restaurants in California it was as cool a thing as you could do in your 20s and very, very uh, hard work. Sort of taught me everything about entrepreneurship, about raising capital, about leading, managing people, recruiting good people. And also taught me that I wanted to go into a business that had better gross margins than, uh, than the <laughs> restaurant business. So I went back to Harvard uh, Business School and uh, focused entirely on Another people business, which is the med tech space, but with obviously very different profile, um, instead of serving food, you're serving technology to people. Uh, but a lot of the same same capabilities that are required in running companies, uh, whether it's restaurants or, or med tech, uh, were things that I had experienced in the restaurant business, were able to parlay them into med tech. So then I, I joined a, a company called Fox Hollow. Uh, it was yep. sort of off to the races. Ultimately, um, became the president of that company. We sold that, and then I've had a series of other companies that I've started and sold. Uh, CV Ingenuity, and then Spyrox then uh, ACT, which became Epics. Um, and along the way, we formed Ajax, and then, as we'll talk about a little bit later on the on the talk here, uh, Zeus. So.
0: Let's talk about your, your relationship with 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 KKR because KKR has been a, a player in in many of those companies, if I'm correct. I mean, they were investors in Spyrox and in uh, CV Ingenuity and Epics. What was your? How did you come to work with with KKR?
3: It's actually really interesting. So, the relationship goes a long ways back to uh, George Roberts, Henry Kravis, and my grandfather. Actually, so my grandfather uh, was uh, ran a company out of the Midwest called Crane Packing, which was one of the first take-a-company-private LBOs that KKR did. And so... Uh, Henry and George didn't know that I was related to Carl Rolin, who was my grandfather, until you know they decided to invest in. Uh, it was this time; it was Spyrox. and I went into the investment committee meeting to present to them and, and told them that I was the grandson of their first LPO. and it was sort of a small world. So, <laughs> even though that wasn't the the catalyst to work with KKR, uh, my feeling is that private equity uh, represents a, a lot of optionality for med tech companies, uh, given the scale um, of the investment size and the scope in terms of opportunities that they bring. And what I mean by scope is, yes, you can arbitrage a company, you can go sell it, or um, you could use a private equity engine to, to buy a company that with a growth driver like the companies that I've, I've uh, fortunately been involved with, allows us to uh, commercialize independent of of having to sell to one of the large incumbents. So the private equity guys bring an enormous amount of, like I said, scale and scope to uh, an investment, which gives you maximum optionality. So I've always felt that getting that optionality helps drive returns. KKR saw a similar approach and they decided to to back us um, a bit. So it's a it's a it's a long relationship now uh, with me personally, not including my grandfather. It's a standing relationship for about five years. And uh, they've been just a delight to work with.
0: I just want to drill down. Optionality, you mean just having options in people who will acquire a company? What do you mean by optionality?
3: So there's like three phases of really, really challenging development for a med tech company. One is coming (laughs) up with a really cool technology, right? And there are people that are really smart that I'm fortunate to work with that... Uh, come up with really cool, interesting uh, technologies that that we decide to fund. The second mm-hmm. phase is execution, and I've worked with incredible people on the execution front. Um, you know, people at uh, all of the companies, uh, Philippe Marco, who. Is an extraordinary talent. Uh, worked with me at both uh, uh, Fox. I'm sorry, at CV Ingenuity and at Epics. Um, so the execution phase is, is really important. And then you get to this point where what do you do? You've got a cool technology. It's it's got regulatory approval, and that's where optionality becomes really important. Historically, especially before the last 12 months when the med tech IPO market has uh, is, is lit on fire the real only liquidity was to sell to one of the large players. And there's been significant contraction in the number of players because of the acquisitions that the big players have made, you know, Abbott buying St. Jude, et cetera. So uh, not only uh, were there was the, the the value creation piece tied to selling it to one of the large strategics, the number of strategics was actually reduced as well. So, it sure. just became incredibly difficult for even really cool med tech investments that sometimes take 70, 80, hundred million dollars to get to the point where they could transact to have the leverage that they could use to um, to get the return that they would need for the investment. So the asset class became a little bit anemic, right? People, the venture, mm-hmm. the venture groups decided not to invest in med tech. Everybody thought of it as a bad word relative to biotech, health tech, et cetera. So what optionality gives you, right? What having a big challenge... Book or a big partner like KKR does is it says, hey, listen, we can go shop this deal to an Abbott or to a Boston or to a Medtronic. But if they don't want to pay for it, and there's a lot of reasons outside of just, you know, um, <laughs> value pressure if for some reason it doesn't fit within what they're doing you're sort of stuck mm-hmm. unless you have the create unless you have a creative option generating engine like a private equity group that can say okay let's go do one of three things if we can't sell it let's think about aggregating companies to get critical mass so that you aren't a single product company you could take it public that's one option mm-hmm. two is you say okay we're a growth driver are there companies out there that need growth and we're going to buy that company and combine these two assets right and you know we did that a little bit with spyrox we we sold our company to intellus we could very well have bought intellus and you put those two things together three months later it was sold to striker because the profile of that asset changed from low growth to high growth or the third thing is um, is you do both you aggregate assets and you buy a chassis and you put all those things together and either run it as a private company or take it public so having you know the ability to access five, six, seven, $800 million gave you optionality that allowed for us to be really discerning about what liquidity endpoint uh, we needed to take.
0: Are you, comp- are, is private equity paying a price that's competitive to larger strategics or being acquired by a larger strategic, or are you really stepping in when these companies have no other option and this is their path and you're able to, the the price reflects that.
3: I mean, I think it's, it's hard for if I were in the shoes of a large strategic, Mm -hmm. right. And, um, They're sort of they're 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 incredible engines in terms of commercializing, incredibly good at at quality, at regulatory, at clinical. Uh, But they're buying they're buying innovation to the to the greatest extent possible. Not unlike what you see in the biotech space, where they're buying smaller companies. The problem is, or the challenge is, is that unlike biotech, where you know an investment can translate to a billion dollars in revenue um, if a compound gets approved, in medtech. Uh, the costs are similar in terms of development. It can take $100, $200 million to develop the product, but the markets aren't as big. And so the ability and the willingness of the incumbents, the large strategics to pay you know, the price that, re- that, that will reflect a return on equity for the backers of the smaller company isn't there. And so mm-hmm. um, until the IPO market happened, you needed that optionality to be able to you know, spend a hundred million developing something and then be able to create it into a billion dollar company, right? Now with the IPO market, it's even more challenging because what what's happening is the strategics are looking at this and saying, okay, we're, we don't want to pay through more than three or four or $500 million for a company, but the public markets for a, a company like that are supporting a billion to a billion and a half dollar market cap. So they're still needing technologies. Strategics are still needing technologies. They're still a great conduit to commercialize them, mm-hmm. uh, but you have to figure out how you can create value associated with that. So we're not competing. You know, we're, we're not trying to compete. We're trying to give ourselves optionality. If for, for one of a hundred reasons, a strategic doesn't want to acquire it, and or want to acquire it at at a price that makes sense for our investors.
0: I want to get back into into KKR and, and Ajax, but I would love your take just briefly on. You mentioned the IPO markets open. We're seeing the the SPAC thing is, is certainly hit med tech with uh, a few companies, uh, Butterfly Network being one. We've talked about in the podcast a lot, and uh, and Scott Hunnican's. Just uh, announced he'll he'll be uh, looking for some companies to acquire through another. What is your take on, on the the uh, on, on spacs? Is it uh, it certainly provides optionality? Provides another alternative. Is it going to mess with the uh, the I guess the, the the foundations of pricing in, in M and A? Uh, does it have any long, larger impact on medtech, or, or are these just sort of one-off things that will, will come and go with with uh, the rise and fall of the market?
3: Yeah, no, I think it's. Uh, I think they're here to stay. I think that it's uh, going to be the third leg. You have IPO, you have structured deals, and then you have SPACs that um, are going to be liquidity engines for or liquidity opportunities for not just MedTech, but across the board. I think that uh, the fundamentals of a company still need to support a public entity. And so there is a lot of money right now chasing, chasing uh, companies that might not be wanting to go public, but um, historically, or couldn't have gone public historically, but now could. So I think, I think they're here to stay. I think that what SPACs do is in my opinion, they transition uh, a company from needing to do a crossover mm-hmm. round before they go public to being the crossover round. So you can come in and, and you can find a company that maybe uh, needs to uh, go public a year from now, and you're going to do a crossover round. Now that company can be spacked and get to the public market sooner. Interesting. I, um, I also think that Uh, the visibility, right? So when you go public, you have to write an S1 and you have to communicate it. Uh, I think it's the S3 that you have to write for um, the SPAC. You're able to talk about what's going to happen in the future in a different way than you're able to talk Mm -hmm. about what's going to happen when you're going public. So uh, you're able to bet a little bit longer term and understand a vision of a CEO and a founding team. Maybe a little bit more deeply than you would be able to understand it from what you get from an S one, and so I, I think all of those things are really good. So then the question is, are there companies out there that could go, could be spacked and? If you're a company, do you want to be spacked or do you want to go public? Uh, ideally, the the right the right players uh, that could be spacked are also companies that could go public. The difference being that they might be a little bit earlier than than a public market. You know, one of my friends was telling me in the tech space that you know there's a thousand unicorns, mm-hmm. right? There's over a thousand unicorns in the tech space, and um, so there's a huge demand and opportunity for spacs to come in and take those companies public. Um, that's surpasses the amount of money or the amount of SPACs that's that have been created. So I I think SPACs are here to stay. I think they're really healthy. I think they uh, are allowing companies to get, er, you know, public earlier. Uh, It allows for some of that optionality that historically before the IPO window opened up was just tied to arbitrage. Now you have public market opportunities through, you know, a a direct listing, or you could um, go public or you could SPAC. So I, I think it's really healthy for our space.
0: Well, let's talk a bit about the effort you would have going with KKR with this Ajax. I'd love an, up, an update on that. And then uh, in, in last fall, uh, or early winter, I guess, you, you announced the launch of Zeus. And uh, I'd like to understand what your plans are there. Let's start with Ajax first. That That is still an ongoing concern with, uh, with KKR, even though you, you've sold a number of companies that were – Sort of Ajax projects, correct?
3: That's right. So Ajax, um, Ajax has uh, some, several investors. It's got uh, Polaris. It's it's lead, led by HealthQuest. It's got BlackRock. Okay. So there's a there's a big capital source there, and we've raised um, we raised sleeves of a hundred million dollars, right? So uh, we have four sleeves of four hundred million dollars under management, basically. Um, what we do is we have the ability with Ajax to invest. $100 million sleeve in one company or uh, you know, $10, $10 million checks in 10 companies. right? Um, but what mm-hmm. we really are trying to do is find opportunities where there's an operational capability that could be benefited by some of the operational experience that we have. Um, we're not looking to run those companies. We're not looking to take them over. We're looking to take all of the war wounds that are all over our body from having done this for 20 years (laughs) and help entrepreneurs uh, avoid some of those pitfalls uh, and therefore get more streamlined vector to value creation. So that's what Ajax represented. And it's doing well. We have like 13 companies right now that are in three therapeutic areas, some services, some electrophysiology, and some interventional oncology, all really cool spaces, really cool entrepreneurs
0: All of those have drawn from those $400 million, from that $400 million? Okay, great.
3: And then, you know, again, the idea in this world is uh, sometimes it takes more money um, and you want uh, additional capital uh, without having to syndicate. So we created Zeus, uh, which, which is another entity with KKR. We funded it with $100 million and Zeus complements Ajax in the following ways. One, it co-invests alongside Ajax in opportunities that are de novo. Two, Zeus has come in when we want to, uh, when we need more money, instead of having to go to an outside venture firm and get a, th- you know, a, a third-party mark to validate it, we're able to do that internally so that we keep alignment with our investors um, when critical decisions like should we sell or should we should we not should we go public or should we not go public? There's complete alignment between Ajax and Zeus. And then the third thing is um, we've been able to tap into the private equity side of KKR, which gives us the ability to look at taking down a big company if and when we we need to, because you know market dynamics dictate or there's not a, an ability to sell a company to a larger strategic, we can create that large strategic entity. So Zeus creates an incredible flexibility based on the, just the size and scale of KKR.
0: So $100 million, I mean, that doesn't Sound like a lot. It doesn't sound like you're going to be able to acquire a lot of companies to consolidate or invest in many companies with that. Am I, why am I wrong on that?
3: You're not. hundred million dollars in today's day uh, and age is not very much money, but you know they have you know, their last fund is like twenty four billion dollars, right? So we have the ability to go into that ecosystem, which is backing us. And if we need to buy a company that's doing hundred million dollars in revenue, and you know, $10 million of EBITDA for $500 million, we, we just tap the private equity arm of KKR. If we need to scale up to make a $200 million investment from Zeus, boom, we do it. So $100 million is basically a starting point that allows us to scale um, very, very significantly if and when we find the opportunities to do so and if and when we need to do so.
0: A final question, I'm not looking to to add another paragraph to the obituaries of venture capitalists, but what is the what is the state of medtech VCS in in that who who is funding what kind of entities are funding the companies that you'll be investing in through the these vehicles and, and are there is there enough of that going on?
3: So I think, I mean, the venture guys are really smart guys, right? And they've uh, they've seen a lot, they've done a lot. I think they're having to do a couple of things. They're having to think bigger, right? So they're having to write bigger checks. The idea of writing a 5 million or $10 million seed check and, and reserving $10 million uh, for downstream, it doesn't exist anymore because it costs so much money and it takes so much time for these technologies to get to the point where they're valuable. So I think that the venture guys are, 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 adapting to be more like growth guys. Um, but they're also able to do early stage investing. The the challenge that I see with venture is um, just based on the experience that I've had, which is um, a company is best suited when it's going after the ultimate value vector as opposed to chasing its next funding. Mm -hmm. And the traditional venture model is let's raise 5 million and get to milestone one, and then we'll go out and uh, raise money at a higher value and get to, you know, Uh, milestone two. And we'll do that until, you know, we create value. I I, I think it's very distracting for management teams to live that way. It's very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. for a CEO to worry, have to worry about capital. My whole approach is you go in and you capitalize a company. You say, okay, here's the budget to get to value creation. What is value creation? And what does that look like? And How how much money is it going to cost to get there? And then you fund it right and and you figure out what works for the ceo in terms of equity you figure out what works for the investors in terms of ownership and you figure out what we need for the management team and that's all decided up front and then you basically say let's go and let's let's drive this really tight and you know instead of zigging to meet the milestone that we need to raise the next you know series b all we're mm-hmm. doing is tightening our belts to get all the way to that end of end value that's how i run it that's a little bit at odds with how the venture world runs it. But I think there's probably room for both. I just think it's more like we, we need to take as an asset class, we need to take eight year timelines and condense them down to five. And so everything that we can do to make that happen is going to be beneficial to um, to entrepreneurs as well as to the asset class, which is med
0: tech. How do you then... I'm just I'm laughing because I'm kind of reminded of how the boomers raised us versus how we may be raising our kids. Where we <laughs> have always had to earn a lot more than, you know, we really had to earn everything we got yep. when we were kids, and that was part of the venture. The venture were like, look, we'll give enough money to get to this point, and then if you do a good job doing that, we'll give you more. I mean, that sort of invited innovation and, and, and cost savings and workarounds. Do you still get all that if you if you sort of alleviate or eliminate that? A little bit of that funding stress, how, how do you ensure that these companies are still innovative?
3: Yeah. I mean, funding stress and focus don't have to be aligned to get productivity. Yeah. Okay? Funding stress is a nightmare. Like I, I've lived <laughs> it so many times, right? How am I going to raise the next money? An example was when we did CVI, I had to raise money in 2009 for a PMA product that ultimately would cost $100 million when the market had collapsed and I was trying to raise a seat of $2 million, right? It, yeah, it was sort yeah. of pathetic. But so I have been on that. What what I try and do is make sure that we are operationally tight and that the capital that's required uh, is dished out. It's raised, it's committed, it's there. But we're not we're not putting 40 million dollars into an organization it's milestone driven because the Mm -hmm. other thing you want to do is you want to make sure that, you know, after 2 million, you've got proof of concept and you know, this is going to work, you know, after 10 million, you're ready for the clinic. And then, you know, a big spend is on the clinical trials. Um, But you don't want to, you don't want to burn $40 million on day one. You want to know it's there, you want to know it's committed, but you want to drive the organization really hard to make sure that they earn the right for the next tranche, which is coming from that capital source that's already identified and, and solidified up front. So you keep the stress on, you keep the tension on yourself as well, right? So you don't get fat, dumb and happy, but you you, you definitely make sure that um, the capital is there for, for the ultimate drive to the end zone.
0: The CEOs get get a little more sleep, so they're, I'm sure they're more productive. They, they
3: stress out in other ways. They're, they're still up all night anyway.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Duke, thanks for the, the time today. It's always great talking hey, Tom, to you.
3: Hey, Tom, thanks so much. Appreciate it, pal.
0: All right, Chris, let's let's roll into number three. We already hinted at it a little bit.
1: Hell in you know, number three, we've got uh the uh former uh, verb surgical CEO. He has a SPAC. Uh, uh it's called uh you know, Vita Flash Acquisitions. It's somebody else who's you know been on our podcast as well. You know, it's Scott Hennekins and uh and it's, uh, you know, they're planning a $175 million IPO. And then after they, uh, you know, they get the IPO done, they'll go uh, shopping for a, a cool uh, medical device company to acquire and uh, take public through the acquisition. But I mean, these, you know, I mean, these things are proliferating in general yeah. right now. Um, but I mean, we're definitely seeing a lot of it in uh, in MedTech. I mean, and you know, you've know you got, you know, the uh, former iRhythm COO, Kareem Cardi, uh, you know, they just closed on a $250 million uh IPO for SPAC uh last December. Uh we've got uh you know former Medtronic CEO Omar Ishraq on eight hundred and sixty two point five million dollar IPO for uh for SPAC earlier this month. So I mean we're just seeing these proliferating. Um you know it's uh it, it seems like a really interesting way to, you know, take a young medical device company public and uh, perhaps uh you know, uh, you know, avoid some of all the hoops you have to jump through to do a traditional IPO.
0: Certainly, a lot easier for the company, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what what the impact is. Actually, today I spoke with both guests, uh, Duke Roline, He is backed by the private equity group KKR in two efforts, and also Jeff Martha talked about SPACs and the impact that they have on on M A for strategics. If you've got someone like the Butterfly Network, we've mentioned them here a few times, being purchased for over a billion dollars. Yeah. You know that that uh, trickles down to valuations for all companies and Tech, so uh, you exactly. might see he talks about Medtronic moving earlier stage because uh, because the later stage deals are getting uh, very pricey, so it's going to be uh, another interesting trend to watch. Yeah, exactly.
1: Number two on the list, we've got BD and uh, Scanwell Health collaborating on a uh, smartphone enabled home COVID 19 uh, rapid uh, test. And uh, you know, Scanwell is a developer of a you know, smartphone-enabled uh, at-home medical test. It's going to offer its mobile app to pair with a uh, BD's uh, antigen test for for uh, the uh, virus that causes, causes COVID uh, nineteen. And so, it just should be hopefully another you know cool way to just get like some uh, quick uh, home
0: test done for COVID nineteen. Anyway, we can like boost the testing. Excellent, great news. All right, and uh, let us uh, bring it home. Number one on the Newmarkers Newsmakers list.
1: And number one on the list is we have uh, Transenterics uh, changing its name to a census Surgical. And basically the name is that they took a uh, A and uh, put it ahead of the uh, word uh, Census S-E-N-S-U-S. Uh, that's Latin for cognition. And it's supposed to kind of like, you know, represent like this idea that they're, you know, ascending, uh, elevating robotics surgery uh you know transenterics now a sense, a sense of surgical has been uh you know doing a lot of pioneering work when it comes to packaging artificial intelligence with uh with robotic surgery and they're actually kind of saying that they're you know transitioning from being just a robotics company to being what they're you know, calling a digital surgery company so um
0: yeah you know, fun name that seems to be the buzzword and uh, bringing it back to the podcast that's because it's all i ever talk about but the
1: big thing i'm wondering tom is i mean we get these names off of latin and sometimes Greek. I mean, when is somebody going to do a company name off of Klingon?
0: Uh, that would be difficult to I, pronounce. And it would also be a bit, of a, a bit of the antithesis to medical, right? I mean, Klingons, I don't think they would really honor honor a medical professional.
1: Oh, yeah. It's true. Yeah. They, I'm not so deep in Star Trek. I can remember the name of a Klingon weapon. But, you know, there's something might be involved with a weapon. like a, uh, Batleth would be one, yes. Batleth, yeah. Sorry. There we go.
0: <laughs> not that I'm a nerd or anything, but... All
1: right. Well, I'll, I'll mix my Klingon idea.
0: Going back to this part of the Alpha Quadrant, uh, we were hoping to have, we will have uh, Anthony Fernando, CEO, on the podcast, I hope next week, if not then, the week after. Very so, cool. Excellent.
1: And I see here we've got, um, we've got the, uh, you know, top editor for Design World here, Paul Haney.
4: Pa- Paul, good to see you, man. Longtime listener, first-time caller, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Paul, <laughs> what are you here for, right? I'm <laughs> This is your
1: life I mean, Chris Newmarker. Know, you, apparently. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you ruined my stick. I was going to have a whole this is your life Chris Newmarker. Do you recognize this voice? Oh, what was what was young Chris Newmarker like when he joined uh, WTWH Media 3 years ago? Oh my gosh,
4: he was he was so quiet. He hardly ever said anything. He was, you know, quite the wallflower. I'm I'm sure you can imagine. Yeah. And look at him now. Yeah, He's blossomed into this I,
1: amazing
4: <laughs> industry leader, right? I, I try. I try.
1: I, I you know, I, I, I kind of remember, I think when I joined, I shaved all the time. I, you know, the, the shaving's gone down. I think that was before last
0: COVID
4: year. though. And I, I don't remember very much of life yeah. before COVID. It's all a blur. Yeah, it's
0: just yeah, it's like a hundred years ago. We we talked about Blur's Day last week on the podcast, yes. so we've already covered that. But <laughs> <laughs> you have some uh, an interesting uh, interesting program underway, Paul. We brought you on to talk about uh, about the R and D award. So tell us a bit about which about well, I, first of all, I, tell our our listeners about uh, what you do at Design World and about Design World, and then let's get into the R and D.
4: Well, so Design World is a horizontal design engineering magazine for uh, OEM design engineers, kind of across the mechanical and electrical engineering spectrum. Um, but then I'm also in charge of R&D World magazine, formerly just R&D. And uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm really here to talk about today. And uh, R&D World goes out to, uh, you know, lab scientists, engineers, lab managers, uh, and professionals in the in the research and development side of things. And we run the R&D 100 awards which is really the only science and technology awards competition that uh, that recognizes new commercial products and technologies and materials that are of of significance that, that we think they're going to change the world. And this program goes all the way back to 1963, so we're we're very wow. proud of it. It's uh, it's been called the Oscars of innovation. There's a couple of other names out there that, that people go back and forth
0: with. So you it probably probably gave an award to the computer. I bet, right? I think we did. In fact, I did. The, <laughs> the
4: uh, former the former editor
0: just sent me some uh, old issues,
4: and he sent me one from 2007 where they used to have the scientists of the year, and they actually had. Anthony Fauci was the, the scientist of the year. And so he was on the cover. Nice. So I, I took a picture. I got it tweeted out. I keep forgetting. But uh, but yeah, the R&D 100 awards, it's, it's kind of a cool thing in that one of the things I like about it is uh, either you win it or you don't. It's not a rank thing. So you don't know if you were number seven or number 81. You're just in or you're out. Uh, we obviously get way more than 100 submissions every year from all over the world, from Singapore and Finland and Thailand and uh, Taiwan and Brazil. And so it's kind of cool to see all the things that come in. We have a number of different categories, including like analytical and test, uh, software, mechanical, electrical, process. And then we also have uh, special recognition awards that we do. So those are corporate social responsibility, green tech, market disruptors for products, market disruptors for services. And then this year we've got a brand new one called battling COVID-19. So we're really excited to see what, uh, what kind mm-hmm. of submissions that, right. uh, that we get for that. But uh,
0: I think we have a, f- a few companies that have done that, right, Chris, here in the device so. talks world. Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, there's a few, uh, yeah, there's a few <laughs> medical device companies like trying to tackle this for sure.
4: So if, if any of your listeners are, are interested in, in learning more, uh, they can follow, uh, on Twitter, RD100 awards is our uh, our Twitter account. Uh they can go to rdworldonline.com which is our our main website and there's there's information there or they're welcome to uh to contact me directly if they have any questions.
1: This is really just like anything that's like
4: super innovative that've come out of uh, you know their R&D departments, right? Exactly. Um, And then we also have an R&D 100 podcast, if I can kind of promote that too. And that's uh, a thing where we we come out once a month and we just focus on one past R&D 100 winner and kind of talk about, you know, how that innovation happened. What was the genesis, the idea, you know, does that company have any kind of a secret sauce as far as how they innovate? And it's been really interesting so far. And I I co-host that with Amy Kalnaskis, who I know you both know well. Yeah, Amy's, Amy's great. So that, that's awesome. Is there any any really neat trends you're noticing in the uh, submissions this year? We, we just opened up for submissions uh, a few weeks ago. So okay. I don't think we have any yet, but you know, like most of these programs, they always come in, you know, the, <laughs> the last few weeks, they, they, they come in like crazy. Yeah. Um, it, it is, I will say it's not an easy one hour kind of thing to just, oh, I'm going to get online and enter it just because you have to collect a number of uh, uh, different things, as far as you know, what the questioner asks you for. So it's uh, it's it's a little bit of an intensive process. So it's not something people usually do on a whim. So they know it's coming, but uh, our yeah. deadline this year is May seventh. We do have a late deadline of May thirty first, but that there's an extra fee on that. So let's just let's just focus on the May seventh. And uh, usually in the in the weeks leading up to that, we'll get we'll get a slew of them. But but I, I expect you know. There will be a lot of COVID-related things. Yeah, for sure. So it'll it'll be interesting to see, and uh, maybe I can come back on in <clears throat> in a few months, and we can talk about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah, that yeah and great. we will
0: include a link on uh, on the show notes, so uh, folks can just uh, find an easy an easy way to get all of this information. So sounds like a, a great effort, and it's great to acknowledge uh, the research and development folks there. And I, and I will say that the the design world team actually they they are not just dumb writers like me and and smart writers like Chris, but they're actually. Know what they're talking about. They're engineers.
4: Yeah, we're actually engineers. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, and you know, you never know with with COVID world, uh, but in normal years, we have an amazing black tie uh, yeah. dinner, awards dinner for the R&D 100 that, uh, again, goes back decades and decades. Uh, we had one in 2019. Obviously, we couldn't in 2020. Uh, the dinner's usually in November. So we're, we haven't made any decisions yet, obviously, but we're holding out hope that maybe, in 2021, by the time November turn you know comes around, the world hopefully might be a different enough place that we could actually host that dinner. But uh, again, we're not going to make that decision for uh, several months yet. And Paul,
1: I'm wondering: Do you own a tux for the uh, for the event, or do you? Do you I rent? actually
4: rented. Wow, you yeah. rent?
1: Okay. But I mean, if we get these going, I mean, you might might be worth it to buy.
4: Well, see, that's what I told our yeah, CEO. I'm like, at some point, I should just buy sorry. one of these because we don't have to pay to rent it every year. So, well,
0: if you if you need a couple of uh, red carpet reporters, Chris Newmarker and I are available. We'll be out front uh, greeting the uh, the nominees as they walk in. I.
4: I, I get interviewed every year by uh, the Taiwanese TV. Sends a couple stations over, so every year my, my kids are always amazed that <laughs> I get these links where I'm being interviewed on That's the great. news in Taiwan.
0: So you're, you're an international celebrity. Awesome. I'm a celebrity somewhere, if not here. <laughs> well, it's a great program. We'll definitely have you on for for reminders, and uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll track the progress. Hopefully, we'll have some uh, med tech yeah, winners in really there for cool. sure.
4: All right, Jens. Hey, it was nice uh, seeing your faces and hearing your voices. Yeah,
1: great having you on, man. Same, Paul. Thank you.
0: Now I'm thrilled to introduce our closing keynote conversation. Hard to do much better than Jeff Martha from Medtronic. Thrilled that he agreed to sit down once again and review Medtronic's quarterly report but also give us an update on the reorganization also many of its innovative products its new product launches and we talked a bit about SPACs in other current events and some uh, interesting news from China so we'll hear from Jeff Martha right after this word from Finnegan In this episode of the Two Minute Detox, we're going to hear from Jacob Schroeder. He's a partner at Finnegan, the IP experts, and he's going to talk to you about the power of a quality patent. Let's listen.
5: Building on our PETA's piece from last podcast, I will now discuss an issue known as the divided infringement problem. The key takeaway on this issue for our audience is that you and your patent attorneys should be deliberate in drafting your claims to cover the actions of a single actor. This issue arises in the context of method claims, and the law holds that to infringe a method claim in a patent, every step of the method must be performed by a single person. And to illustrate this point, consider this very simple example of a claim, a method of using a medical device to treat a patient comprising coupling the proximal end of the medical device to a computer, inserting the distal end of the medical device into an orifice of the patient, operating the medical device to achieve a medical objective. In this trivial claim, we have three steps, coupling, inserting, and operating. Yet in reality, this claim may not ever be infringed because separate people may perform each step and no single person performs the entire method. For example, perhaps an engineer couples the device to a computer during manufacture, whereas the physician is the one who inserts the device and operates it. Thus, no single person performs each step because no single person performs both the coupling step and the inserting and operating steps, meaning there's no infringement. When you draft your claims, keep in mind whose conduct you are attempting to capture with your claims and keep your method claims confined to capturing the conduct of only a single actor. Of the over 10 million patents issued in the history of the United States, only a small percentage of these have ever been subject of a lawsuit, and fewer still have made it all the way to a jury verdict. That's why measuring the value of your company simply by the number of patents it has obtained makes about as much sense as measuring the value of your company based on the number of people it has employed over the company's history. Both metrics show that a lot of money had been spent. But if you're relying on patents to protect your company's R&D, work closely with your law firm to carefully craft your claims with a focus on quality rather than quantity. As a patent trial lawyer, I'd take one well-drafted patent over 1,000 weak patents any day.
0: Thanks, Jacob. For more information, go to Finnegan.com. Well, Jeff Martha, welcome back to the podcast.
6: Yeah, thanks. Good to be here, Tom.
0: So you had a, a great earnings report today or good earnings report today. Uh, wanted to go over the, uh, some of the details from that, but also, uh, kind of get an update on the, uh, the reorg and that your folks are undergoing. Uh, I think you announced that it was, uh, it was done. At least that was my understanding, but let's, let's first get into, uh, into the business. You had indicated that February was stronger than January. And I think you anticipate March will be stronger than February. So we're moving in the right direction but, uh, give us uh, an overall sense of, uh, Medtronic's performance.
6: Sure. Well, look, we were uh, we're really pleased with our, our fiscal Q three performance. You know, especially in the in the backdrop of, of the recent COVID surge. I mean, we're making progress sequentially quarter over quarter in terms of getting back to closer to more normal levels of revenue growth as well as profitability. You know, launched a number of products that are having an impact, and you know, we're taking share and continue to advance the pipeline, you know, for the products that haven't launched yet. Some of these are blockbuster potential here with like the surgical robot and Ardian. So it was, it was a good quarter for us um, and and hopefully a you know a good quarter to a series of quarters here where we're just consistently executing like this. In terms of the, um, you know, the overall market backdrop, you know, we, we, we said that um, we believe March will be better than February, April better than March. Quite frankly, we haven't seen, you know, so for us, this second wave or this latest wave of COVID, it really didn't start to impact elective cases from our per- perspective where mm-hmm. our recovery didn't like slow down and actually turn, turn down a bit until late December. So later than maybe some of our competitors, I think part of that is because of our, so many new products out there that that, uh, that, that masked it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, it went into January and into February, and we really thought we'd see by now a turn. Now we're very optimistic that's going to happen. We think it's delayed a week or so because of the uh, weather that we've had in the United States. But you know, we are in talking to hospital CEOs. You know, we're you know uh, they're very bullish in terms of the you know snapback the anticipating in elective procedures. And uh, like we talked about on our earnings call, we're seeing our capital equipment, which is as you know, Thomas tied to procedures, whether it be. Uh, energy consoles for energy uh, surgical products, energy consoles for surgical products, or be imaging or navigation equipment for our neurosurgery procedures or actually our robots. This, this type of stuff is selling at record numbers. Uh, each one of them is either at a record or near record number. Uh, in, in our stealth station, navigation has been out there for years. And so, so we believe this is a leading indicator of what's to come uh, with, with the bounce back or snap back, I'll call it, in the procedures in the United States. And we think Europe will lag by a few uh, you know, few months, actually, but, uh, but uh, we will experience something similar.
0: Have you for the for the larger capital items, have you had to introduce any new financing to assist the hospitals in their purchasing, or are they able to manage that still on their own?
6: you know we we haven't introduced new financing just anything we have been offering more and more financing over time because capital equipment's become a bigger you know part of our business at the, mm-hmm. at the beginning, it just wasn't uh, it wasn't a big need, but now that capital's become a bigger part, we've gotten more sophisticated in our customer financing options. Um, but that isn't so. It's a part of that is is a result of COVID. It is actually now that I think about it. Back a couple of months ago, you know, particularly with our Missouri robot, we we didn't want to slow the adoption of that because it's such an important component of our strategy and a leading indicator, I think, of our spine business. And so we did uh, a couple of months ago introduce some new financing options. Uh, that's helped, and I, I've seen some of our competitors, or even you know people in capital equipment that we don't compete with, uh, are, are using more financing as well, for what we can tell. But I I, 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 that's helped. But I really think the bigger message here is hospitals gearing up for for procedures.
0: And you mentioned that new products might have masked the the slowdown a bit. Why why would that be? I'm not sure because it's you're allowing for new procedures to be done. What's the connection between a new product?
6: Well, I think it's taking share. So, so we're taking share. I mean, and um, so we're getting growth uh, in excess of, of the market. Um, and and I think that that that's what I mean by that.
0: Okay, great. So let's let's talk a bit about the new products. You talked about that you had forty six approvals last quarter, and you've had two hundred twenty right. since last June.
6: January. Uh, January. Last, January. I last January. June, That'd be even
0: better. <laughs> that'd be even better. <laughs> it began with a J. Let me look, let me read my own notes. January. Yeah. Uh, so talk a bit about uh, some of the uh, the ones that really have stood out and have been. A- Adopted quickly.
6: Sure. Well, I mean, the uh, indication expansion for our micro leadless pacemaker, you know, the AV indication. Uh, you know, indication expansion. And that has been a, a huge standout. I mean, it, it's been growing, you know, like last quarter, it grew 75% in the United States, 64% globally. And the quarter before that, it was even higher growth. And so that's been a real standout. And it's it's really redefining the pacemaker market. with all it's, you know, the fact that it's leadless and can be inserted with a catheter versus a procedure. So that's that's a big one, and then our, our our various neuromodulation franchises. We've been investing in, in you know we invented neuromodulation twenty some years ago, and then you know m- you know maybe five plus years ago we had fallen you know more than. You know, five or about seven years ago, we'd fallen behind and, and and started losing share there. And, and we made a lot of investments over the last few years in, 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 in our neuromodulation in platforms. And, you know, those products are coming to market. So one is our deep brain stimulation, our percept uh, deep brain modulation system for Parkinson's that, that has a brain sensing mm-hmm. in it. So you can actually listen. I, like the way I like to say it is we're now having a two-way conversation with the brain before in DBS and our competitors, you're just kind of screaming at the brain with energy, modulating it to mitigate the symptoms. Now we can listen back to how the how the brain is, is responding to that, and then lead is us the ability to personalize the therapy. So our Percept system is the only one out there that has the ability to sense, and and then where, where you got more products coming. Uh, our leadless, or I'm sorry, our directional leads. Uh, call, you know, we call them Sensite leads are coming in a couple of months, and so we really believe this is starting a multi-year, mm-hmm. um, uh, I think, market expansion and market share for DVS for, for Medtronic. And then on pain, we did an acquisition, our pain stim SCS, the spinal cord stimulation. We did an acquisition uh, a couple of months ago called StimGenics and launched this new waveform on top of our existing uh, pain stim device called IntelliS, which is you know got the best battery life, the smallest, et cetera. And then you add this algorithm to it, this new stim pattern. We've got great twelve-month data, and that is leading to uh, some some share gain there, uh, d- despite a replacement uh, headwind that we've got. And, and then we've got we, d- we announced at Nans in January that we're coming out with eCaps, uh, you know, uh, of compound action potential, and that is generating some excitement. So we're seeing a lot of momentum and pain. And then finally, pelvic health, you know, um, you know, this is neuromodulation or sacral nerve for overactive bladder. Um, that that business that market is, is starting to get to become a, a pretty decent sized market. I don't know, is a billion or so, our revenues you know over seven hundred million or so, and um, and so uh, you know that's growing double digits now. I and mean, we have got a, a new competitor there, an Axonics, and you know uh, some of the new products that they've introduced and, and focus they've put on the markets help expand the market. But we've launched uh, a new rechargeable system there, and it's I think we've t- we, I think we talked about our earnings commentary like eight or so plus points a share that we've taken back in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so those are all you know standouts for us that are out on the market, and and then I, I can't I have to highlight our surgical business. You know, legacy uh, you know convidian surgery business had a really good quarter, and that's important for us because that's one of our big franchises.
0: Is that one of the the the, the, the franchises that? really generates the cash and helps fund the innovation you spoke about earlier. Yeah, so
6: for us, we've got our three biggest businesses, our cardiac rhythm business, so pacing, ICDs. That's one. uh, Our surgery business from Legacy COVIDian and our spine business, including the capital equipment that goes with it. Those three uh, are generate a lot of the the cash flow for the company, and then you've got your like high flyers like neurovascular mm-hmm. that's big and growing fast, you know stroke, and then you know our structural heart like Tavor and uh, that's also big and growing fast. So you got your high flyers, but a lot of our cash flow comes from those other three big uh, businesses. And it, what's good about things right now for Medtronic is all three of those are growing at or above the market uh, and are, are all and the markets are doing fine and all of those. And we have a really strong pipeline. So when one of those three starts to lag, it really hurts. Uh, it really hurts. It puts pressure on the company and and we feel good about where we are now and where we're where, where, where the road ahead for all three of those businesses.
0: And, and those businesses are going to get some competition as well. We've talked to the podcast last couple of weeks, Coors of Medical, and I don't know if you want to get into the details, but they're, gonna, they're going to into surgical and Zimmer spun out their spine group. I don't know what that's going to become, but uh, mm-hmm. the competition is uh, is certainly out there.
6: Yeah, it is. And, you know, I, I do feel low in, in spine. I know that a little bit better than the others because I, I used to run that division I'm still learning the, the others a bit. I do feel like you know um there used to be in spine like and there still is hundreds of competitors, but you're starting to see the market consolidate now right because not everybody can afford it's more than just about a screw and a rod and some new thread on a screw and and it's way beyond that now you're talking about interoperative imaging, navigation. Uh, robotics. We just bought a company called Metacrea out of France that's Mm -hmm. data and AI that's allowing for uh, surgical planning and personalized implants. I mean, so the game has gotten much more technical, which it needed to in spine. It needs to because the outcomes in spine are too variable and you're too reliant on, you know, uh, physician skill. And um, you're not going to train enough physicians around the world to democratize good spine surgery. So you need you need this technology and so it's good it's good for patients and it's good for medtronic because we've been investing in this and, and as as the industry consolidates we're going to be a winner and we you know, and, that, and that's really that enabling technology has really taken our spine business from losing share even shrinking a few years ago now it's to to growing mid single digits and and uh, you know depending on the quarter holding or gaining share
0: are there any products out there that uh, are needing a longer runway than you thought initially that maybe aren't getting the traction that you anticipated
6: yeah, I'd, I'd say one, and not for the reasons you might suspect, is the is our diabetes uh, new pump 780G, which is launched in Europe but not in the U.S. and mm-hmm. it's gaining great traction in Europe. The problem is it's not in the United States yet. It's uh, it's our new closed loop system, and what it does is a couple of things. You know, first, it's got new algorithms on it. It's uh, and and it's uh, the time and range for these insulin dependent uh, diabetics is. You know, in the, it's very—it's like we've not seen before, and then it eliminates a lot of the hassle factor of our existing system alerts and alarms that go off, at the, and keeps you in auto mode uh, a lot, a lot longer. And so, the feedback we're getting from patients and physicians. Uh, has been phenomenal in Europe. And I just actually talking to investors, you know, some of these in, are longer investors in Medtronic, you know, that know Medtech, do their own market research. And just talking to them over the last few days around earnings, they're, they're, they're val- their own surveys are validating what we're hearing, which is always good. And and it's getting great traction. The problem is it's delayed getting into the US. You know, the, 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 the approvals... For di- and this is public knowledge. The approvals for diabetes products of the FDA is backlog because that same division is focused on mm-hmm. COVID diagnostics. And so, I mean, I understand that. When I say I'm frustrated, I'm not frustrated at the FDA. I'm frustrated at the situation. And the FDA has been been very good about communicating this. Uh, I, you know, it just doesn't mean I, I just don't like the answer. <laughs>
0: Let's talk about the uh, the pipeline coming up. We can give a bit of an overview, but I'd love specifically to hear more about renal innovation, which is uh, is uh, are you calling the product OnMet or is that the name, of the, the name of the trial? That's the the trial.
6: You okay. know, this is a, the, the, in terms of what we call the product. That that that's something uh, interesting, and, and even the procedure. But uh, uh, sorry, to mean you're up to the, the OnMet is a trial.
0: Okay, okay, no, that's fine. So let's talk about that first. So where are we with renal innovation? I mean, I think you're talking about maybe going to the FDA later this year.
6: Right. So, well, first of all, one, it's got breakthrough designation. Assuming this, uh, was it MSIT, that ruling stays, it survives the, the new administration here, the Biden administration, which we think it will, we automatically get mm-hmm. four years of reimbursement upon FDA approval. And the, what we're waiting for to go to the FDA uh, is this on-med trial, which is the, uh, the last piece of our pivotal work Pivotal clinical evidence generation uh, which we anticipate those results will present them, will present themselves uh, this year it's a bayesian trial uh which means it's it's variable when when you're you've reached your endpoint um and uh, and and so we we expect to hear this year and present a TCT in the fall and so and we're you know based on all the work you know we, this is decades of gone up work and you know over a billion dollars has gone into this we're we're very excited and, and, and optimistic um, about uh, about what uh, renal denervation can do for for patients.
0: And uh, talk a bit about the uh, the effort you're working on with with Half Moon, the the Mitre Clip, the, the the Foundry project.
6: Yeah, sure. Um, you know, this one this one's an interesting one. I mean, the first the whole model, yeah. right? Of, of um, if I take a step back, you know, just to kind of talk about Medtronic strategy or One of, the thing that that above. You know, all us. You've heard. We'll talk about the new operating model and all that. But really, what what we're trying to do here, the leadership team at Medtronic is put more resources to work in terms of uh, of R and D. And we're doing it in traditional ways through putting it into uh, organic R and D. We're doing uh, a series of tuck-in you know acquisitions, which we can talk about. We've done like eight over the course of the last year or so. Um, we're do, we're leveraging third party money from like uh, like Blackstone mm-hmm. to come in and augment, um, and then we're looking at partnerships like the Foundry here and, and to extend our R and D and uh, in this case this is a situation where uh, the Foundry as you know in, you know invented the the micro, Mitral clip and has you know really great capabilities. And we decided we didn't tell them what to do. We said this is what we this is the end result that we'd like, and Mm -hmm. can you figure out how to achieve that? And in the mitral repair area, and they came out with an interesting design, and we we funded, we provided the funding for this company, which we which we call Half Moon, Uh, and there's pre you know you know pre-negotiated purchase you know agreement here, Uh, and so um, and and they've come out with a we think a, a very innovative device that basically the way it's been explained to me and I've seen it, I thought it was good is you got these leaflets and, and we basically put a, you know, that aren't really touching and you get the, the, you know, the leakage there and we put a backboard on one of the leaflets that enable... It to uh, you know it to close and you know it's it's a lot more sophisticated than that. I mean, but I, my depth sure. doesn't go too much deeper than that.
0: <laughs> Works for me.
6: And you know we we've done a few cases. The first case I'm a little bit more aware of. Uh, I think we've done two or three more since. And it, it it totally eliminated. It was easy to insert according to the physicians, and and uh, it, it completely eliminated the uh, the MR the, the mitral valve regurgitation. So so we're excited about this, and obviously in that that structural heart space is. I mean, people go back and forth on what's the biggest growth opportunity in healthcare in med tech. Is it is it more is it is it you know structural heart related mitral and bicuspid? Is it is it surgical robotics? robotics is it uh renal denervation i don't know but it's it's a big growth area yeah. and we've got organic and inorganic shots on goal here and 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 the the partnership with the foundry's been you know really good so far and and we're excited about this this half moon venture
0: Now the foundry is a great group but and they uh, coincidentally also developed ardian which is your renal denervation project now right it's interesting though you mentioned blackstone you mentioned the effort with the foundry these are both almost kind of Pharma-like models, where you're bringing in private equity money to fund early stage, fund ongoing business, or partnering with startup efforts really early on at the concept stage. You not usually didn't see that very often on on med uh, Is this something you're looking to replicate, either with a private equity firm? Or find some other uh, incubator effort out there.
6: It is. It is. I mean, look. I, I first of all, what strength of Medtronic? Um, I, I think that it is our technology capabilities and platforms. I think our, our clinical, or we're really good at clinical science, uh, and then I think we're good at, you know, uh, taking these devices, therapies, products, and then globalizing and making them a standard of care. You know, so the commercial side of this. You know, and and, and I have a lot of faith in our technology team. And so we're trying to give them as much uh, resources as possible to to work their magic. And our batting average is very high. Uh, And so that even third-party money, right? Third-party money is using like the Blackstone type of deals. It's all our people, all our ideas, all our IP. Mm -hmm. Something like the Foundry, we are using not just, um, we're using, in that case, we're using our money uh, off our balance sheet. In the case of the foundry, we're using our uh, some of our there's new IP generated, but we put we contributed IP, um, and then we do contribute people, uh, you know, that go there on a uh, like a sequestered you know basis, uh, but they contribute a lot of people. They generate new ideas and new IP as well. So it's not just our technical uh, capabilities; in, uh, in clinical, it's theirs as well, and so that is a, a little bit of a different model. Probably we'll do that less than I, I think the you know the Blackstone type of deals uh bringing in third party money because we do have a lot of ideas mm-hmm. um and and we it, there's not as many people out there that I believe that can do it as as well as we can do it internally
0: excellent and final new product I wanted to talk about uh Hugo people are interested yeah. in, in getting an update on the robot uh,
6: look the uh very you know we are excited about this it's been a long road uh and and mm-hmm. it's been a lot longer than than certainly we wanted and uh, to, to get it done, it's 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 the most complicated project I think we've taken on. Certainly, legacy Covidian, and even at Medtronic, there's a lot of moving parts here. Building a robot from scratch and a lot of different technical components. The testing and the validation and verification work that we've been doing over the last couple of months has really gone really gone well, especially the past couple of like the past two or three months. Uh, and so we're on schedule to uh, which which we've been signaling to investors for a while uh, to file for the CE mark. Uh, as well as file for our us ide here at the end of the calendar quarter here so march um, and uh, hopefully have our first surgery and our first sale uh, sooner than later the first surgery would be in obviously in a a jurisdiction uh, that doesn't have the regulatory requirements for approval Um, Mm -hmm. but you know we hold ourselves to a pretty high standard here before we do a surgery Uh, but the animal work's gone well and and like i said the training with surgeons has gone well and you know, we're we're really. I'm I'm personally starting to shift my focus to uh, to the commercialization of it now.
0: Why was it important to develop it internally as opposed to acquire? Was there just nothing attractive out there to acquire? On the
6: robot? On the robot. Well, yeah, this decision goes way back before me or even chronic. <laughs> this was a. This started way back. I can't remember the exact date, but it's it's you know ten years or so. Okay. pavidian made this decision. I mean, it makes sense because look, they're a big franchise at the time, and now our biggest business is that surgery business. Yep. And. You know, you know, without a robot, I think you you're you're gonna be marginalized in surgery over time. So many of these surgical procedures are moving to robotics. Physicians are partnering with companies that bring them the best technology, whether it be laparoscopic. There's still a lot of runway in laparoscopic, I mean, around the world. I mean, the growth in laparoscopic in terms of dollars is going to be more than the growth in robotics, I think, for a while, but the growth rates in robotics is gonna be higher. So, you know, so Covid made the decision to to do this organically, and it started out. I don't know if you heard this story before Mm -hmm. Um, uh, they bought uh, some IP and technology and uh, some people from the, the uh, basically Germans version of Germany's version of NASA. I think it's called BRP. I can't remember the exact acronym, but it's, it's Germany's NASA. And we still have a facility uh, in Germany, real close to their one of their NASA, I can't remember DLP, I can't remember the the acronym, but and I went to visit it once. It's it's really cool uh, and it's great technology. So that's how it all got started. I wouldn't call that inorganic because um, it was no. so early. Yeah. Um, and and by the time Medtronic got involved, this project was well on its way. And um, you now you know it's 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 uh, been delayed, like I said, a couple of years earlier uh, later than we originally thought. But still, I think the end product is going to be worth the wait.
0: Excellent. No, oh, that's a really interesting. I hadn't heard that. Well, let's let's move. That's a great uh, segue to M and A. Uh, a year ago, you said we'll be doing more tuck-ins. Today, you talked about a lot of the tuck-ins you did. Uh, we we you, you can highlight a few of the larger acquisitions if you'd like. But I'm more interested in knowing what does 2021 look like in terms of M and A for you. Are you going to be doing acquiring?
6: Yeah, we're still we're still on the hunt for these um, tuck-ins. I mean, that's our our focus, right? And tuck-ins are by definition, first of all. They're they're around our existing markets that we're in, our existing therapies or products. So, you know, surgery, you know, spine, you know, various areas of cardiology. So it's the areas that we're in. They tend to be early stage, right? So many cases, not commercial or just going commercial. Uh, They tend to be technology or clinically oriented, and and then we um, they they're really an extension in my mind of, of our organic growth strategy, and we're going to continue to look for these. And I think they do need to be earlier stage. I mean, because because a couple of reasons. One, uh, as as these you know um, early stage companies as they start to get cl- start to get closer to maybe an IPO and start to ha- get their sights set on that, you know, the valuations uh, these the the capital markets are are, are white hot, mm-hmm. uh, and as you know for for these type of products. And the valuations get uh, tough once they get to an IPO. And now you've got SPACs out there
0: as well. I almost wanted to ask you about SPACs. I'm like, no, nah, it's too, too far afield.
6: Yeah, yeah, so you got SPACs out there as well that are looking for, for deals and they're looking for deals yeah. that are closer to that IPO uh, timeframe. So I think for us, um, it works better to, to do them a little. I'm not saying we're not gonna do later stage deals. I mean, we'd still do those. Um, but i think the, the 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 more the frequency will be these the which is what we've done over the last year these 8 deals are all you know tuck-ins relatively early stage some earlier than others
0: so are the spacs really impacting the the price of uh the, jacking up the price for MA for for later stage properties
6: not you know i haven't seen it for us yet all right yeah. we haven't like a deal that we were circling around, but like, if you look at uh, some other med tech, you know, acquisitions like this, uh, butterfly ultrasound company, I, I'm not yep. an expert on butterfly and all that uh, ultrasound technology, but it went for, you know, over a billion, it was a well over a billion dollars. And, you know, based on what I know about the company, it was you know that's a high valuation. Yeah. And so, I mean, I could see that translating into our space. I don't know why it wouldn't. So,
0: no, good um,
6: It could be, but you know, we're going to turn around and and you know, we could partner with some spacs. I mean, it's I, I I'm not anti spac. I mean, I think we can <laughs> partner with some spacs and and use those to our advantage. so idea. But it, but it just, it just, um, it's just a reality.
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you got to go. Let's just, I want to wrap up with the uh, an update on, on the reorg. What is the status? Is it, is it uh, complete?
6: Oh no, it's not. I wouldn't say it's complete. But okay. what, 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 let me be specific. We want, we want live with it February first, and that's like the structural piece of it, right? So the the decentralization into our our business, our what we're calling now operating units. Uh, the 20 operating units, decentralizing into them, putting consolidating a lot of our decision making into those operating units. We took out uh, over two layers of the company, not quite three, but uh, over two, uh, which helps with our agility and, and things like that. So that 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 is done, okay, and, and been announced, and everybody knows and. And uh, the dust is still settling on that, but there's still this operating model is much broader than structural. Think mm-hmm. of that as kind of going from mainframe to PC, right? Okay. And, but we still have software issues, right? We got to, we got to rewrite the software. And so we are launching, uh, we're still working on our new operating mechanisms. That's our, like our, our standard meetings, our quarterly business reviews, we're trying to streamline those, streamline some of our core processes, including our product development process. So we got to streamline the processes We're putting new incentives out there, which we started last year. We're going to continue into this year. Like last time I talked, we talked about market share, Mm -hmm. putting market share more into our annual bonus plan. We've already put it into our annual goals and objectives. We're now shifting to put that in our bonus plan. We needed a, a couple of quarters to learn how to measure market share um, um, more accurately because in a lot of the markets you're, you're triangulating, right? We like big comp, some of our larger competitors, like, like a Boston scientific or a, or a, or a striker may have these products that are kind of buried in their PL. and It's hard for us to tease out exactly how much, so we we're getting better at doing that. And, and so uh, putting market share into our incentives and then finally, our, our culture, our new cultural norms, uh, which we which work alongside our mission. You know, Medtronic, we're a very mission-driven company, not changing the mission at all. But the mission was written 60 years ago. <laughs> the competitive landscape was, was very different. The, the world wasn't, you know, Medtech wasn't global. You know, there weren't all these uh, focused startup uh, competitors that are well-funded, that are nibbling at us from all angles. Mm-hmm. So it didn't really address some of the competitive nature and the speed at which things were happening. So our our new culture gets at, you know, a more competitive mindset. That's where the market share measure helps us with comes at being more agile and doing things faster without though cutting corners on, on quality at all or integrity. And so adding that and getting that ingrained into the company, that's, that's going to all these other, the software I call it, is going to take a little bit of time, but there's a lot of enthusiasm about it. And I'd say some of the early signs um, that we're seeing that are tangible is the, on the market share piece. I mean, we focused on that first and mm-hmm. we are seeing it show up in our, our results uh, where we're, you know, gaining share and, uh, you know, in uh, you know, more areas across the business.
0: I noticed you uh, you highlighted that in the, in the presentation. One thing I want to just ask about the REORG and just sort of personnel, we talked, Chris and I were talking at the podcast last week about we're seeing Medtronic people take senior positions in other companies, including a CEO position. Yeah. And how do you look at that uh, when you're doing going through this reorg? There must be an ex- expectation that some people are going to find other opportunities, not just during a reorg at any time. How do you look at that as a CEO? Do you factor in those changes? Do you have backup plans in place
6: yeah.
0: already? But what, what, how do you approach that attrition issue?
6: Yeah, I think there's two things I address that. One, on the on a reorg like this, anytime you kind of shift, you know, the uh, some of the decision-making, if you will, in a company from one area to another, you're going to you create some disruption and you're going to have people that you don't necessarily want to leave that are going to leave. And we had some of that, not a ton, but we had some of that. Uh, um, But it was, it was within our expectations for sure. But then beyond any kind of reorg um, when you got our 20 operating units and and I want to be known as not just, um, you know, from, I want Medtronic to be known as not just a mission driven company uh, and a technology company, but a a, a tech, a talent Mm -hmm. factory. Okay. And, and there's, there's, there's pros and cons that come with that, right? The pros are you're, you're, you're attracting people, you're developing, you build these, this cap these development programs and this culture of developing people, it's going to help your company for sure. Okay. One of the, you know, kind of the side effects of that though, is you're going to have, other companies poaching your people. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I remember when I was growing up in GE uh, back in the good days of <laughs> GE, you know, uh, we won't talk about that now, but they were known for their training yep. programs and, and they were a management factory. And the, one of the training programs I went, which is the oldest one, it's their financial management program, you know, which was, was considered the most successful management training program in business, you know, it was entry level program, 50, it had over 50% attrition, meaning that once you graduated that program, you know less than 50% of people stayed with GE for you know whatever 10 years or more. And a lot of them would go to you know other companies because they were so sought after. So and it was still a huge a, a really great return for GE on the investment. Now I don't want any anywhere near that kind of turnover from our executive team, but you get the right. point. The point is we want to invest in people. There will be turnover because we're gonna be a, a talent factory, but we're also gonna be attracting uh better talent on the front end. And it's just something we're gonna have to if you want to be a talent factory, that's one of the things you got to contend with.
0: Yeah, be Bill Belichick being uh, filling filling coaching slots across the league.
6: Oh, come on. You're killing me. I'm, I grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up in Pittsburgh. I don't want to hear about Bill Belichick. I
0: would draw the statement. That's
6: okay. But I, it is a good analogy, except I'd like to think I don't wear hoodies. I smile a lot better, a lot more than him, too.
0: You're you're a lot more personable than he is, at least from here. One final thing I want to just follow up on. It was kind of news to me. Uh, there's an issue. It was brought up during the analyst questions, and I think you brought up during the presentation. But just the, the China tenders and the, and the and the pricing pressure on drug eluting stents. Can you can you sort of bring me up to speed on that? And and you seem to convey that maybe, hopefully, that Medtronic had some sort of uh, advantage in in sort of contending with this.
6: Well, look. Anytime you take a pricing hit of that magnitude, and it's a, it's a very significant pricing hit, you know, in in, in China. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's been contained to China, and, and this isn't new to the coronary stent world. The, there's big, major pricing differences all around the world, um, and and um, but but this this was a big one with China. How big was it? Taking it was in the ninety percent. Wow. You know. Of okay. Yeah. And um, so that that hurts. But what we got in return is we were one of the five winners of this national tender is dramatically increased volume. Um, and you know, the Chinese government actually called us and said, are you ready for this? And you know, you're, you're prepared for this kind of volume. And um, the other thing strategically, what, what what's happening now is because of the lower price, so many of these uh, other uh, more rural cities in China, tier two, tier three cities that weren't uh, participating in coronary stents before are now, these hospitals are now participating in this. So we're we're now, that's allowing us to expand our sales force out of the tier one cities into these, uh, not out, but ke- keeping them in the tier one, but adding salespeople with all this new volume into these lower tier cities. And even though the margin is not quite the same on stents, this will uh, be um, the highway, if you will, that we launch our, our newer products that are differentiated. And we don't think we're going to be hit by these type of tenders. Things like, we talked about earlier, renal de-innovation. Mm-hmm. Things like um, uh, some of our um, some of their other products. Oh, Taver, that was mm-hmm. the other one. So they, they, they go to that, that that same physician group. So t- our transcatheter valves, which are going to be coming in China soon, as well as reno de-innovation. So it allows us to expand our sales force and get ready for that, uh, even though uh, I would re- rather not take the pricing hit. But that is one of the ways that we're contending with it and overall I've been able to, to manage it Um, but it is for the next couple of quarters, it's going to be, it's a headwind for us.
0: Okay. Well, I appreciate uh, your addressing that. And I appreciate you for taking a few minutes today to uh, talk to us. I know it's a busy day. Thanks for joining us, Jeff.
6: Yeah. Thank you, Tom. Always have fun with it.
0: All right, well that was a great program. Always great to hear from Jeff Martha and thank you, Duke Roline, for for joining us as well. Chris Newmarker, now is the time when we plead for social connection because we're so darn COVID lonely. How can folks find you on social media? Now, if
1: you want to connect, I'm on LinkedIn.
0: You can find me at Chris Newmarker, just like a newmarker, and I'm on Twitter at Newmarker. Absolutely. And I am on LinkedIn as well. Tom Salemi. I am on Twitter at at medtech tom i'm on clubhouse at medtech tom actually paul heaney and his team held a uh, a a clubhouse room meeting today which uh which i thought was well they're going to do some more it went well so we'll uh we'll try to get something up there maybe chris and i'll be up there to uh to chat with you folks and uh once again from uh from the bottom of my heart and i'm sure chris as well and he'll express it himself but we're really grateful to everyone who has listened uh we would we would very much be grateful if you would share this podcast tell others about this podcast uh we will uh we really would like to grow this into something even more awesome and uh we're trying to find new ways to uh to make compelling content for you so the more people who listen the better
1: yeah exactly I just, just very grateful that uh you know we we have this uh this audience excited about what we're doing and you know we're just gonna you know keep on
0: going and uh, do even more cool things fantastic well said well that's a wrap folks Once again, please subscribe to this podcast. We're on every major podcast platform, Amazon, Google, Apple, you name it. You can find us. If you subscribe, you'll get this delivered to you almost immediately after I push the publish button. So uh, you'll be one of the first to hear the great insights in MedTech that we try to deliver to you every single week. But uh, once again, that's a wrap. Tune in next week. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. See you soon.